Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's begin. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be navigating the world of property investment with Don Weed, who is the president of Heartland Funding Inc, a company which buys homes. Hi, thank you for joining me today. Hey Gabriella. Um, so I don't really know much about um, Heartland Funding Inc or any anything about what you're doing. So do you mind introducing yourself um, in a bit more detail so we get to know you? Sure been buying houses actually since 1985. Um, we can get into that later. It's kind of, it wasn't planned, but it turned out to be a good uh, situation that I've followed through to this day. Heartland Funding Incorporated is a company that was actually formed in 1990, incorporated from a small business, a, a personal business into a corporation. And as most people in the investment world, they like to use one of two vehicles, usually either a corporation or an LLC. I chose a corporation. Mm -hmm. We are actually, I have homes that I rent out. That's one section, one part of the business I do. I'm a landlord, but also I'm what they call, a lot of people call a wholesaler. Well, I'll buy a house and I'll turn around right away and sell it to an investor who will either fix it up uh, and flip it or fix it up and rent it out. So I'm kind of like the middleman, actually. And that, again, was done not was not planned. And we can get into that also. But it was mm -hmm. a, a good, good situation that came out of some uh, website design. Mm -hmm. And how did you, you said that it wasn't planned that you got into this area. So how did you get into this area? Or do you want to save that for later in the podcast? Well, I can tell you, back in 85, I'll try to make it brief. I had mm -hmm. a brother that, uh, I'm also a pharmacist, a registered pharmacist. I do practice a little bit, semi-retired. But back then I was working out of school, got out of school, was working, making great money, had great credit, which my brother did not. So he approached myself and my mother and he said, hey, I've got these two VA homes. A VA home uh, is usually has a very good loan on it. Uh, and he bought it. He wanted to buy them at an auction. I said, sure, why not? He's going to do all the fix-up on them. The plan was to fix them up, turn around, resell them. Well, that all went really good. He got about 90% through with the fix-up. But he got divorced. And when he got mm. divorced, he kind of went a little... Uh, off the rails. So I'm stuck with a house that I don't, I'm not really good at fixing things. I can do it, but I don't really prefer to. So I had a house that was about 90% completed. Uh, found someone that was laid off from a job, was a very handy individual, who actually is one of my best friends as of, uh, these days now. But uh, at the time, didn't know him, but it was recommended from a friend. He went and finished it up, fixed it all up. I rented it out. And I thought, man, this is a, this is a great, 
great thing here. I got rental income coming in. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I got into it by accident. Mm-hmm. Now, as time went on, I was not the best landlord because I was not trained. I had no education. It was kind of just winging it as as I go. And I acquired a couple more properties because the word got out, hey, Don Weed buys houses. He's got this rental house. You want to buy another one? So I bought another one. And then I bought another one. And now I'm a landlord with three houses. And like I said, it wasn't educated in property management, which is very important. A lot of people think that, you know, hey, it's it's simple. You just collect checks. Well, it's not that simple. So I wasn't very good at it, and I wanted to get out. So I actually did get out of it. I, I sold the houses and switched over to something else. It was called paper buying back in the late 80s, early 90s. But that's something that's not really in vogue right now. It's buying discounted notes, mortgages, and contracts. So I kind of transcended out of the rental properties uh, into buying notes and mortgages. So that was a, that's a great, also another great investment opportunity. It's basically buying something when people, sometimes people, well, back in the 80s, we had terrible inflation and very high interest rates. Mm-hmm. Interest rates in the 18 to 20% range. Uh, so because of that climate, there was a lot of people couldn't sell conventionally and just go out and get a loan at a bank. So they carried the financing. In other words, it was owner carry back financing. For example, you say, I'm going to sell you my house. It's a $100,000 house. I'll give you $20,000 down. Carry the balance of 80000 in payments per month for whatever length of time until it's paid off. Or they, they may put a balloon in place. But it was a scheduled actual debt instrument. Well, people's needs and wants change. I mean, you know, some, some of those were written for, you know, 15, 20 years. And some people would rather get the cash out as the as time went on. So I would approach them and say, look, I'll give you X amount of dollars for that note, for that mortgage, for that contract. And then those people will be making their payments to me. But when we mm-hmm. bought these debt instruments, they're always bought at a discount, not face value. So when you buy them at a discount, you get an inherent uh, greater return than the face value on, on the paper. So did that okay. for a number of years until the environment changed on that. And then you went back to properties? No, I actually went bu- into buying this <laughs> tax certificates in Illinois. Each uh, state, oh. each state in, in the United States has a little different, not a little different, very different uh, mechanism for delinquent taxes, delinquent real estate taxes. In Illinois, it's probably about the most complicated, but it, it can be very uh, rewarding financially. Uh, mm-hmm. The taxes, when they're not paid, they have a sale at the courthouse, and you bid on the taxes, the amount of the tax at a rate, and it starts out at 18%, but that's 18% for six months. So it's actually 36% annualized. So those, those are some tremendous rates of return, but they're bid down. That's what the auction is. They start at 18 and they could be bid all the way down to zero. So you bid at the, at the, uh, at the sale and it's a cash situation. So uh, you got, you got to square up before the day's over, but mm-hmm. you inquire the 
the certificates, where they actually give you a certificate and then it has built in interest. And if the people come in, pay their taxes, then you get paid back the amount you put out plus your interest, plus some other accrued uh, fees that are, that are in there. So did that for a number of years, but then it got extremely competitive in the mid nineties. It, uh, there was a ton of corporate money that came in this before that was, there was known tax buyers that had done it, you know, their entire life. And they basically had it as a business, but interest rates started going way down and corporate money came in and started purchasing. And a lot of the purchases were at actually 0% interest. So their philosophy was, Hey, we're going to, we don't care right now. We got deep, deep, deep pockets. We're going to bid everybody out of, out of the, the sale. And so what if two, three, four years go by and we've got zero interest, we've got the competition out. So when that started happening, I said, look, not my, my, my game anymore. I'm going to change. So I got out of that and I just started uh, once again, buying houses, renting houses, and uh, occasionally selling a house also. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's kind of um, back to where we're at now. Exactly. So you've got quite a long history of different types of investments, but you've come back to property. Yep. They were Great. All, all real estate based, mm -hmm. but a lot of different facets with real estate. I uh, will say one thing, um, it's not actually real estate, but it is housing. I was very active in buying mobile homes and selling them on time. Uh, but that is housing again. It's not real estate, but it is housing. So the whole thing revolving around, you know, that's something that all people are going to have to have, like food, like mm -hmm. water. It's shelter and people have to have shelter. So it's uh, in some cases, it may be a mobile home. Some take cases, it may be an apartment. Some cases it might be a townhouse or a condo or a single family home, which is my preference. Uh, so... We're gonna um, we're gonna dive into a bit more of the definitions of all of the um, different things that you're talking about. But first of all, we're gonna do a section called "Have You Met Don," where we get to know you through some of your favorite things. So the first thing I'd like to know is what's a show that you've enjoyed recently? I'm watching right now a show called Foundation. It's an Apple original. I guess you could kind of describe it uh, Harry Potter in space. I, it's it's bizarre, but it's it's interesting. Okay. Um, do you mind talk, telling me a bit more about it? Uh, there's a, it's kind of hard to explain. There's a, uh, this is in the future, of course, and it's uh, this dynasty called Empire. And there's three, there's uh, three different emperors, an old one, a middle-aged one, and a young one. And they clone themselves. When one gets ready to die, they clone themselves for a new uh, passed on generation. And there's this guy by the name of Harry Selden who came to the Empire and told them that he could, through mathematics, predict the future. And he started predicting that what the future for the Empire would be. And they that was a no-no and they exiled him to a planet. It just it gets really complicated. But it's 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 very well done. Okay, interesting. I mean, I am I, I am a huge fan of Harry Potter, so and I do like space, so it sounds like right it's, up my alley. It's 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 kind of bizarre, but it's very interesting. Okay, um, and do you have a role model? 
Well, I would have to say my role model models were my teachers. Back in the 80s, I got really lucky. When I said I went into buying notes and mortgages, so I got uh, disgruntled with being a landlord because I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, there was a book called Real Estate Concepts. And if you, it was written every two months, it was put out. Actually, it was very good. It was by uh, a gentleman down in Birmingham, Alabama. His name escapes me right now. But when you signed up for a year, you got a digest, like a book is called uh, Real, Estate, Real Estate Success Stories. And in there, it was probably 30 different people, all different types of real estate. Maybe some were buying and selling, some were renting, some were, uh, you know, doing comp, uh, apartment complexes, what have you, different aspects of real estate. Well, there's one guy by the name of Richard Rothman that was buying discounted notes. And I read that, I'm saying, wow, this sounds a lot better than being a landlord. So I called him up at 7.30 in the morning, talked to him for about an hour. And I said, hey, where do I get education? I said, I don't know what I'm doing because there's no roadmap on this. He says, I'm going to give you four names. He says, Jack Miller, John Schaub, Pete Fortunato, and Jimmy Napier. Those are the four teachers. They're all from Florida. And they basically started the, Jack Miller taught the first real estate class. And they all do about the same thing, but they all had their own personalities and, and they were all just great mentors. Uh, we used to go to four day weekends, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And we had class. We had class for at least eight hours every day. So it wasn't oh, wow. just, yeah, I mean, it was, it was in-depth work because- what they tried to explain to you is that, you know, this is a job and you got to have to learn the ins and outs of the job to do it right. So it was everything from real estate law to corporation development, LLC development. And then of course, many, many different techniques on how to uh, negotiate, how to manage. And the property manager came in later by a gentleman by the name of David Tilney, I guess it was about 10 years ago when I wanted to really hone up my skills in being a property manager, being a landlord. And he runs a course once or twice a year uh, that is just absolutely the, the best on property management. So it's, it's all, it's learning. It's just not going out there and trying by uh, trial by error, because when you do that, you make mistakes. And I made a lot of mistakes starting out because I didn't have the education to fall back on. I guess the thing is, is that, I mean, I certainly was taught that, you know, something you do when you have a bit of money is you invest in property because, you know, it's a way of making money um, and, you know, having, I guess, some security. Um, but it's one thing, I think, to to buy something. It's another thing to actually have to manage it. It's it's a whole different skill set. We sort of see it as a, as a side hustle, but it's, it's yeah. really, you need education and if you fail it's people's lives it's people's housing yeah you gotta realize there's different aspects to any kind of real estate investment first mm -hmm. off you've got to look at the initial investment and see if it makes financial sense so you have to find that deal then you have to mm -hmm. evaluate that deal once you've evaluated the deal how are you going to buy it are you going to buy it for cash are you going to buy it on terms 
where are you going to get the money? Are you going to partner with a private investor? Are you going to go conventional route and get conventional financing? Once you've acquired the house, almost all the time, you got to do fix up. So that's another aspect that you have to be somewhat uh, proficient at. If, if not yourself, you have to have that lined up. So you, you do have to have, in my opinion, um, if you're going to start investing in property, you have to have a team. you got to construct mm-hmm. your team. When we kind of back up a little bit, when you do that closing, who's going to do it? Well, I used to do a lot myself anymore. I don't do any closings. I have an attorney. And I just give them the paperwork and, you know, but you've got to have that legal team. There's another uh, part of the aspect. And then lastly, that we were talking about, you have to have property management. And without good property management, you could have the best investment in the world. But if you don't take care of it properly, you can run into a lot of problems. Mm. Sorry, Aiden's just um, giving me some notes on where to sit. You <laughs> look fine. Good. Thank you. Um, yeah, so there's quite favorite, a lot of... Favorite Pardon? book? <laughs> I've read so many over the years. I've read so mm-hmm. many help, self-help books and motivational books. I couldn't even list them all. I've got a, I've got a library full of them. But I, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a bad thing whatsoever. I mean... Some people say, you know, your motivation comes from within. Well, you know, sometimes you're, it doesn't hurt to hear experts in the field talk about that. So motivational um, fortitude is important because, you know, it's, this is different. Uh, you know, you're usually kind of doing it on your own unless you have uh, maybe a spouse support or what have you. But uh you do need some motivation to, to keep driving, to keep going. So mm. all kinds of motivational. I think they're all all great. Mm. Is there uh, one that you've read, you know, that you really no, recommend to yeah. people or it's there's too many to list? Oh, my gosh. If you could start naming them, I probably read them. Okay. I I haven't re- I've read mostly fantasy, so I, I don't think that's going to be much of a help there. And the other thing I do is really boring. That's medical stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. You're not boring. I, Most people boring. I mean, I think it depends on your perspective. Um, so I, I assume most will be mostly it'll be pharmaceutical things yes. that you'd be reading. So um, I guess a lot of medical things. Okay, but I guess it's like how do like medications and other things interact with each other to cause different effects? I think that could be quite interesting. That's pharmacy. Mm. Great, um, and thank you for you know starting us off with some ideas of what we're going to be talking about today. But I do like to start the podcast um, with a few definitions. Um, So the first thing I'd like to know is what is um, household management? How do you define household management? Okay. First off, the house that I I live in myself is a house I got conventional financing on. And that's the Mm -hmm. route that most people go. But back, I think it's been now 15 years, pretty much 15, 16 years, I haven't gone to a bank for, for money at all. Uh, okay. But that was something I learned through the real estate education that if you find like-minded people that you can co-venture and my favorite deal was they put up the cash, I put up some cash, we're going to split 50-50. Uh, I'm going to give them 
a good rate of return on their money and we'll split everything as far as profits down the line. So it's kind of a, I call it equity partition, equity participation okay. deal. So that's the way a person can acquire a house, one of two ways conventionally or a little bit differently using other people's money. As mm -hmm. far as, you know, what my daily function is, I'm pretty much usually an early riser. I like to make my own breakfast. I'm very busy, so sometimes that's not possible. I'm hitting the road real early. So, but it's always going to be something for breakfast. Uh, I like to keep my diet. I'm not, uh, I would say I, I just like to have a diverse diet. A lot of fruits and vegetables, a lot of greens, but I still like my meat. Still like uh, uh, my meat products, but uh, try to not eat out as much as I can. Uh, but sometimes in the traveling, that's that's necessary. Try to stay away from fast food places. Uh, I like family style diners or a nice restaurant as opposed to getting a, a fast food fix. And uh, I don't think that's a good, healthy way to to uh, to live. Occasionally, mm -hmm. of course, that there's no problem. But to make a lifestyle out of that, I, I think it's just not not healthy at all. As far as the finances for the house, uh, I live alone. I'm a bachelor, old, old uh, semi-retired bachelor. So uh, the finances, I take care of all of them so myself. I don't have a, uh, a significant, significant other to pass that off to. So in my case, everything's done by me. It's the laundry's got to mm -hmm. be done. It's done by me. The cleaning's got to be done. It's done by me. Or occasionally we'll hire somebody to, to help out with the cleaning. But... Uh, it's kind of one man band and, uh, you just have to, uh, I like to make lists. I'm a list mm -hmm. person and sit down and make my list and then cross things off as I go. And that seems to be a pretty good way to get everything done. Mm. And I guess because there's just one person involved, it's not like, you know, you might have some problems where, you know, you think something's being done, but you forget to cross it out and the other person does it again, or, you know, you don't have that communication problem. So a list no. works really well. Communication mm -hmm. in an intimate and, uh, environment or just a work environment. It's important. You know, com mm -hmm. communication is, is key. I mean, in any aspect of life in personal relationships and in business, uh, mm. you put, you know, so everybody's on the same page. You don't have as many problems. Mm, yeah. So you mentioned before conventional finance versus, I guess, unconventional finance. Um, what What is conventional finance? Conventional finance is your typical go to the bank, qualify, you know, fill out 12 forms, press hard and, and, you know, make three copies, put so much money down usually. And then the bank, you, you're going to give the bank a debt instrument a note. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you're going to sign a mortgage with, which is a security instrument that secures that debt. You've got the debt instrument, which is the note. And then you've got a security interest, which is the mortgage, or in some cases, a deed of trust. And those are usually recorded at the courthouse. So there's public records saying, uh, Don Weed owes X amount of dollars and he's supposed to pay it back this way. If he doesn't, then the collateral for that debt is the house or the real estate. So they can, if you don't perform the way you're supposed to, then they can use that debt 
uh, that security instrument to take the property and clear the debt. That's okay. convention, that's conventional financing. Okay. And you also mentioned before that there's a bit of a difference between like real estate versus property versus housing. Do you mind clarifying some of the differences there? Well, I mean, real estate is a general catch-all term. You know, real property is real estate. Uh, there's also personal property, which actually like in a lot of cases would be a mobile home. It's still housing, but real estate is called real property. And that can take many forms. It's like we said, it's shelter. It could be a mobile home park with mobile homes. It could be a condo unit. It could be a townhouse unit. It could be apartment complex. It could be a single family home. It could be, well, it's not so much assisted living. You're not really owning anything there, but that is for elderly people. It's, it's their place to go at the end, but that's not really ownership. It's basically like renting a spot for people to take mm -hmm. care of you. Okay. And so we're going to be talking about property investment, but like what is property investment and what are the principles of, of property investment? Well, it's basically putting your money out there and, and getting a return on it. Uh, that's, mm -hmm. that's how you've got to look at it. What kind of rate of return am I going to get on my investment? Now, one thing I've never done, some people do, it's they, to me, it's much too expensive speculative, they're banking on appreciation. In other words, oh, I bought this pro property for X amount of dollars and in 20 years it's going to go up. I've never looked at real estate that way. One reason being is I'm in a very rural setting in, in uh, North Central Illinois and we don't have, a, historically over the last 50 years, we don't have great appreciation. There's some areas, of course, like uh, a lot of areas in, in the United States where appreciate, there's a lot of appreciation, but I never bank on that. I just kind of figure, well, that's that's a bonus. If there is appreciation, it's a bonus. I want to know if I'm putting out X amount of dollars, what am I going to get as far as a rate of return on my investment? So, I mean, any kind of, other than a, a single family house that you're going to live in, but within, you know, that's just a place that you buy to live in yourself. Myself, personally, I didn't really care so much about the price of my house because it was going to be mine. It wasn't, quote, an investment. It's something I wanted, and I I wasn't going to try to beat down a price on something I was going to live in. Now, the, the difference with investment is a lot of times the price you're going to pay is going to be determined, you know, what kind of rate of return you have. You can't be paying retail prices for investment property, inspect it and, and try to get a, a good rate of return. Basically, you're going to have, you're going to have to buy a low market in most cases to try to make a good investment where you're going to get a return on it. So it's a bit like, you know, if you're, um, you know, going to the supermarket and buying uh, a box of eggs versus what the supermarket paid for the eggs, you know, when they bought in bulk, they're not going to be paying the same price that you pay for it because they wouldn't make any money. So, but I'm also guessing in that case, there needs to be the houses that you're buying for an investment. They're probably not going to be the same as the houses that you're going to be buying to live in. So what are the differences when you're looking at, you know, making those two choices or making those two purchases? Well, actually the houses that I keep myself for my own personal portfolio, I mm -hmm. like nicer houses and nicer neighborhoods. Now, did I start out like that? No. 
when you're first starting out, uh, you know, I would never buy today a house I would have bought 30 years ago because it's just not the type. Number one, it's not the area that I'd want to, I'm interested in. It's the low, it's a lower class of clientele, a lower income class of clientele. Um, and it's not something that I'm interested in now. Some people call them ghetto properties. I don't think that's kind of a harsh word. I just call them lower price properties in some of the not better areas of town. Let's face it. Every town has different areas and starting out, sometimes you have to buy the cheaper properties and to make those numbers work. But as you get older and you acquire houses, I've always looked at it. You got rid of, I always, I always want to get rid of my worst house. If, if I'm trying to move up in uh, value, get rid of my lower uh, quality homes and willing to take less of return on my investment for a nicer property that I want to hold for a long period of time. So I think it's, it's just kind of a evolution when you're starting out, you're buying lower, a lot of times you're buying lower price properties, but in my opinion, you want to work your way up over the years to acquire, if you want to hold properties as rentals, to have a nicer house in a nicer neighborhood for long-term rentals. Okay. And as far as location, um, so you did mention that, you know, if you buy in some other areas, it would be, I guess, more effective to, to buy and then sell quite quickly um, due to the appreciation. Um, so would you recommend taking that route where you do buy in another area or would you recommend buying in the area that you're currently in, even if the appreciation isn't as high? My opinion, uh, mm -hmm. I, I had done early in my career, back in the 80s and 90s, I bought stuff all over the place and it was a nightmare to try to manage it. Uh, so my opinion is, buy things if you're going to hold them yourself and if you're going to manage them yourself my rule is no more than 30 30 minute radius from where i live uh, now that i have amended a little bit because i travel quite a bit and i've got a second home and i travel quite a bit between my primary home and my secondary home so i've kind of amended that that anything within that corridor where i could easily you know within because i'm driving down there couple times a month. So it's not something I'm going way out of my way. You just want to make it, in my opinion, that there's something that you can easily access. That's not going to have to be a major change in your lifestyle to, to go try to bail out some uh, problem property. Because, okay. you know, as much as you, you're doing your due diligence as far as vetting people that you're putting into your homes, through sometimes no circumstances of people's own doing, things happen. People pass away, people get sick, people lose their job. So even with the best vetting, sometimes things do pop up. Okay. Well, I like so, I like being close to the vest and close, close, relatively close. Now there's another school of thought that, hey, you can have properties anywhere in the world if you got good management, if you got good property management. Unfortunately, I have never, in my opinion, run across a good property manager in my life. Um, ah. I, I just always think something that's your own, you're going to take a lot better care of somebody else that's uh, got hundreds of properties 
and yours just one of them. I think that we find that a bit um, working with, with uh, in Australia with real estate agents, there's a bit of a, um, I don't know, stereotype that people who work um, with renters, um, they don't really care about the renters um, and they don't really care about the property. They're just trying to make a bit of money. Well, unfortunately, that stereotype is the same in, in the United States also. My, I, I have to agree with that. Personally, though, I don't, I don't believe in that at all. My tenants, mm-hmm. when, when we get together, I tell them, look, this is your house. I'm not going to cut them around. I'm not one of these landlords that's going to drive by. I'm, in fact, you probably will never see me again unless something major comes up. And I says, if it's anything, I give them the name of, of a company that does all my plumbing, all my heating, all my electrical all the major stuff. I said, don't call me, call them. I've got an account with them. I said, there's no sense calling me because I'm not going to come out and fix it. I'll have to make a phone call to them. So you're, you're just wasting time and you're wasting my time and your time and, you know, and you're wasting Grazier's time, which is the company I use. And so they get the picture right there. It's right in the rental agreement. Here's the phone number. Here's their email address. Here's their physical address. Anything major, call them up. Uh, anything minor, if you got a, something that, and another thing is I make sure that all my people that I have as renters, I want to make sure they know how to do stuff. You know, they can fix minor things. Um, we go over that, you know, if there's anything up to about a hundred bucks, grab it, keep the receipt, take that off your next rent, rent check, but deal with it yourself. So. I get a lot of my maintenance done by my tenants because we have this sit down agreement before, before we rent to them. And, you know, okay. they're going to, they can put brush uh, bushes in, they can put flowers in, they can put gardens in. They want, they want to repaint, they can repaint. It's their house. I want them to feel like it's their own home. Uh, they just happen to be sending me a check every month, but it's, it's their place. So mm-hmm. I think when you have that understanding, you sit down and, and, uh, talk to people about how we're going to do this. And they've got an understanding that this, this is their place. They're going to take care of it. Unless it's something major. It's, it's agreed. Uh, mm. I think probably my longest tenant's been with me for 18 years now. Wow. That's a long time. Yeah. I think that might also be the difference between you know, like a real estate agent who is, you know, I guess hired by a, someone who owns the property to manage the property versus, you know, um, as yourself, um, the landlord who also manages the property themselves, you're going to put a lot more care and thought into it and also a lot more trust into the tenants um, as opposed to the real estate agents who, you know, I've worked with in the past who, um, you know, you're just one of, you know, a hundred, hundred properties and, um don't, you know, I was just told, don't, don't paint the walls. Don't, um, or if you paint the walls, you have to paint them back. Um, and it's very much the impression that I got was if something goes wrong, I have to call the, you know, call them and get them to fix it. Cause if I fix something and it goes wrong, then I'll be liable for that. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, like, that's how it is in, in, I would say 90% of cases at least, mm-hmm. but I don't do things like everybody else does things. Like I said, I sit down to have a 
very candid conversation with them beforehand, you know, mm-hmm. uh, especially even when we're talking before they get vetted as far as are they going to be attentive might or not. And I go through mm-hmm. a very extensive vetting program because unfortunately, you know, there are people out there that don't make good tenants. And mm. biggest problem I found is lack of income. In other words, they're biting off more than they can chew as far as what their monthly obligation for housing is. Uh, if they don't have four times the monthly rent as far as uh, net income, I'm not really interested. Now, I've made exceptions if they've got, if they have very, very little debt. Sometimes I'll go three times that amount, but uh, pretty much my exception. And, and it weeds out a lot of problem, potential problem tenants. So that, you know, if they've got four, t- if they make four times their monthly rent payment, as far as net income per month, that's the kind of person I want in there. And I explained to people, I said, look, if you don't, when your car breaks down or somebody gets sick, or if you got to take some days off of work, or something out of the ordinary happens where you've got a financial commitment uh, that wasn't expected. If you if, if you're living from paycheck to paycheck, I'm not going to get paid. And I said that's not going to work out for either of us. So, you know, ample income is to me is is probably the biggest uh, qualifying characteristic that I that I have for my tenants, and they got money. They usually pay them. Yeah, I have heard that um, your rent should be approximately um, a quarter of your income, Um, you know, and I guess that's a great way for tenants to figure out, you know, what kind of properties they should be looking at and what they can commit to. Yeah, Mm. that's the problem with a lot of people. They, they, They think that they can afford it, but I have to have that candid conversation with them and say, folks, I, I can't rent to you. You don't make enough money. And I've, I've told them right up front, and it's also in, you know, in all my advertisements, you know, I'm looking for four times the monthly or so much net income uh, needed to qualify. So, it, you know, it's I'm just telling them right up front, that's what I'm looking for as far as financial um, stability on their part. And I do look at credit reports. Credit reports are not the most important thing to me, but they can be a, a key that you can use, an additional key. If they're not paying anybody, then they're probably not going to pay me. But a lot of credit reports, uh, probably the number one ding that we see on credit reports here in the United States is medical bills. Um, and some of those people are paying back, but they, they put them through collections. And I just talk to them and we talk about the credit report. We talk about, you know, who, who are you paying? You know, how much you got going out? And another thing I make them do is fill out actually income and debt form. I've got a form that they fill out. On one side, here's your income. On the other side, here's your monthly debt. Let's see how much you got left when it's, when it's all done. And then they can sometimes say, hey, yeah, you're right. This I can't really afford this place. Yeah, so it's important. It's important for you and also for your tenants to know Not, what, what's happening. It's no, mm. it's, it's no good to either... Either of us, if, if I have to kick them out for non yeah. you know, it's, it's not good for them. It's not good for me. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about, you know, some of the challenges, you know, um, finding tenants and finding good tenants. 
Um, what are some other challenges to property investment? Finding the good deals. They're just mm -hmm. not out there all over the place. If, if they were, everybody would be grabbing at them. Uh, finding the deals that make sense. And mm -hmm. a common thread for me is distress situations. People say, oh my gosh, you're taking advantage of people. I said, no, I'm looking for situations, people in distress. If there's a dis distress situation, that's where I'm probably going to get my discount. Uh, for example, um, in my quote wholesale business now, when I buy and turn around and sell to investors, I'm dealing a hundred percent with, with, uh, distressed property, probably definitely over 50% of the properties that we purchase are inherited properties where, you know, someone has passed away and we don't have the nuclear family like we used to have in the United States, you know. 50 years ago, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, they all lived in the same town, maybe right next to each other. Now, uh, you know, the kids or grandkids may be 2,000 miles away all over the country because we don't stay at home like we used to. Not saying it's good or bad, just the way it is. So now you've got a grandkid or a someone that's inherited the property and they may not be in the area and whoever was in there, in a lot of cases, they've been living in a house for 40, 50 years. They haven't done a thing to it because for them, it's comfortable. It's their home. Uh, it's not the case with all people, but a lot of elderly people, they just do not, uh, how should I say it? Their, their house is not modern. <laughs> it may have not been updated for uh, 40 or 50 years. So that's fine. You know, it may be still in good shape, but somebody that's going to want to buy that house, the end buyer, they they don't care if it's old, but they want everything in it new. They want new windows. They want new modern kitchens. They want modern bathrooms. They want the most updated type of flooring. You know, they want it to be like new. So, you know, that's the thing. You can you can find deals in distress situation because those those people that. You know, they want to get rid of it. It's found money anyhow, the, the people that inherited it. And they're not around town anymore, so they don't want to try to deal with fixing it. And they're maybe even too embarrassed to list it with a realtor. A lot of people uh, are too embarrassed because the properties, and I looked at one just uh, yesterday. It was a hoarder house. And people were almost ashamed for me to come look at it. And I said, folks, don't feel bad. I said, I look at these all the time. And it was a hoarder house with stuff six feet high, you know, just place just filled with junk. I've bought houses like that, but they can be cleaned out. They can, you know, clean them out and you make them like new, but there's, that's a distress situation. Uh, poor closure is a distress situation. Divorce is a distress situation. Uh, job relocation a lot of times is a distress situation. So that's what we focus on is uh, actually them coming to us in a distress situation. And most of our leads come to us through our website. And we have strong SEO. We don't do pay-per-click, but we do have a very strong SEO base that uh, drives deals to us. If, for example, somebody puts in a phrase in, into Google, I need to sell my house fast in, let's say, Rockford, Illinois. Well. Hopefully we're going to be number one, two, or three on the, on the organic 
uh, search when they pull that up. So that's where a lot of our deals come. We also do some direct, not some, we do a lot of direct mail for probate. So like I said, probate is a big uh, area for us as far as deals so that we do uh, actually address uh, the executors and the administrators of the probate estate to see if they have property and need to sell. And so I know that you were saying that generally now you buy in nicer areas and also, um, you know, you're generally approached by people, but maybe the house isn't in as good condition as it could be or needs new appliances, new new windows, that type of thing. But what kind of characteristics are you looking for in a house um, when you are, you know, approached by these people who are looking to sell their houses? Well, like I said, when I'm looking at a house, I'm looking at something that I know has got problems. They, they have a problem, either the problem with the house or they've got a problem because they can't fix it, they can't afford to fix it. I'm looking for, like I said, I buy nothing now unless it's a very distressed situation because that's where the discount come in. People are willing to take less to, take, to get a, he- uh, a headache off their hands. So with distress, with um, problems, either physical problems of the house, um, financial problems, the, with the distress comes a discount. I'm willing to take that off their hands for cash, do it quickly, and for that, they're willing to take a discount. And when that discount comes in, uh, if I'm not going to keep it myself, if I'm going to turn around and sell it to an investor, the price I buy it for is one price. The price I turn around and sell it to is another price. The difference, of course, is my profit. It's not rocket science. It's pretty easy. Buy, buy low and sell a little bit higher. So I was going to ask, like, so you're not looking for things like, you know, potential damage, you know, water damage, mold, leaks. Um, that yeah, doesn't worry great. you too much? No, that's great. The worse, the better. Okay. Okay. Everything can be fixed. Mm-hmm. Everything can be fixed. The worse the house, the worse shape the house, the happier I am. Okay. Because people are willing to almost sometimes give that stuff away. Mm-hmm. Everything can be fixed. And now, of course, I don't fix it, but my investors, they understand that too. You know, they're looking for, there's more of a demand for for good deals than there is supply out there. I've got people constantly trying to see if I have something for them, a deal for them, because the demand for these types of deals are higher, is higher than the supply is. Okay. Yeah. So then damage, uh, things with problems, mold and, uh, hail damage and you name it, the, foundation damage, you name it, it's, it's going to reduce that price. And if people realize that, Hey, this house is in bad shape, I'm, I'm, I'll take what I can for it and just get it. It's a headache. I want to get rid of it. So with those problems comes discount with those discounts comes profit. And then I'm guessing that the next step is either, you know, you have your team who will then fix it up or you sell it on to someone else who will then get someone to fix it up. My team, my team was dismantled seven years ago. I uh-huh. needed property um, fix up or repair. I mean, mm-hmm. I did it for many, many, many years. I didn't physically do it myself. I had people do it, but I got tired of contractors. 
not doing the job they're supposed to, uh, nickel and diming a person as far as price. I just dealing with too many people that were kind of out of my control. So I gave up seven years ago. And that's kind of by accident how I got into this flipping type of thing where I just turn around once I've got it and bought, then I turn around and sell it to an investor. And then I don't have to worry about fixing it up. They fix it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't make quite as much money because there's more profit overall if you're going to do the both ends, if you're going to buy it, fix it up, and resell it. But I'm willing to, for less of a headache, take a smaller profit in between. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I used to have a crew that, crews, plural, that used to work out of the houses, but that last one was seven, maybe eight years now. Okay. That's just personal preference. Some people love doing that kind of stuff. They'd really do it. And most people say that you don't like, you don't like houses. I really don't like houses. I mean, yeah, it's my business, but I've got no interest other than I can make money on it. Some people like to say, oh, I can tear out this wall and I can, we can do this with that. You know, we can expand this and we can put an extra room in here. And I, I don't have a mind for that. And I don't have the patience for that, but a lot of people love that. And that's great. I guess you're just a facilitator between That's it. those people. Um, so we'll move on to the practices and habits section. So what is something, what is a practice that you do to manage your property investments? Well, like I said, probably the biggest thing is the initial thing as far as good vetting of the potential tenants. Because once you have a good tenant in place, like I said, I, I don't do anything. They, they send me a check occasionally. I may get, may get a call from plumbing, uh, electric, uh, heating, HVAC people say, Hey, uh, so-and-so wants us to come over and fix it. Let's go fix it. Sometimes they don't even have to call because they've, they've known me for so long. But the biggest thing is if you do your homework up front, you get, get good tenants, property managers, management is it doesn't really exist. I mean, there's nothing you got to do. Um, unless something, you know, you know, at some point in time, you know, I have a, a maintenance guy, things sometimes break. So, so, you know, it's, it's good if you got a handyman for little things, that's great. But, uh, as far as, you know, unless you're talking about major stuff like roofs or new furnaces or ACs or something like that, but things last for a long time. And if you buy them, and you have them in good shape when you start out, then those problems are way down the line. So is that something like, instead of buying the cheapest thing, you know, buy something that, you know, is maybe middle quality, so isn't yeah, going to break too soon? Yeah, like I said, you know, 30, 35, 40 years ago, I'd buy the cheap stuff because it was mm-hmm. easy, it was more affordable, uh, it was within the budget, uh, but, my philosophy now is like you said, middle to upper upper middle class type housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the place that I'm renting at the moment, um, I think, is probably on the lower end. And uh, there's a bit of a running joke that every um, apartment in the area has the same kitchen because <laughs> um, it's got the same cheap stove, the same well, cheap well. tap. And we got our tap replaced last year because it broke, and they've put the exact same one in again because it broke again. Uh, last yeah. month. Yeah, the cheapest thing they could find at the store is what they put in. Exactly. Um, 
And, you know, that's I wasn't surprised when the tap broke, to be honest, because I was like, well, if you put the cheapest thing in, it's going to break after a year. Yes. Sometimes so it's good to know that quality. Pardon? Sometimes you just have to pay for quality. Mm. And it'd probably be cheaper for the real estate agents and for the um, landlord to buy something a bit more, a uh, bit better quality. But yes. I guess that's just how it is at the moment. That's to me. That's a that's a bad landlord slash owner. Mm. Um, yeah, um, I can't comment. I mean, I have pretty cheap rent. Um, and so I guess that this is, it's, it's a pretty easy practice what you're suggesting, which is, you know, just make sure you buy good quality products and you also, you know, make sure you vet your tenants so that you know that you can trust them. That's um, a number one, I mean, people say, mm. you know, gee, what, what's the secret? I said, just do your homework from the start. In fact, I've got a saying, if there's, mm -hmm. if the tenant doesn't pay or if I have a problem with the tenant. It's not his fault. It's my fault because I did not do my job right to start. And people say, what are you, what are you doing? It's not your, I said, yes, it's my fault. I let somebody in I shouldn't let into that house. You know, maybe I let my guard down. Maybe I, I didn't check as uh, maybe I blew something off or what have you, but I feel responsible if, if for some reason they, they stiff me, it's my fault. I didn't do a good job vetting them. What do you do in that situation? If they don't do pay? Do you evict them? Yeah. Got it. In Illinois, we've got pretty strict eviction laws. I mean, you have to uh, give a notice that they're in default. And once they've got, got a notice, it's either a, a three, five, or 10-day notice, depending on what kind of problem it is. And then you set up a court case, and they get served by the uh, process server or the sheriff and then we meet in court and the judge just decides mm -hmm. okay okay there, so there's ways around it mm -hmm. there's a, a practice we call keys for cash in other words if you get i haven't had to do this oh my gosh i don't know if i've ever done it tell you the truth but a lot of people will go to their tents and say, you know, it's got, it's a costly process to, to go through the court system. It may cost several thousand dollars at least. And they'll say, Hey, look, give me the keys right now, or, you know, give them to me in two days, hand them to you when, when you get everything moved out and I'm going to give you 500 bucks, or I'm going to give you a thousand bucks. That's called keys for cash. So there's ways of doing it. Sometimes it to coax people out of a situation. Mm, okay. And I guess avoid all that hassle with the court as well. Yep. Okay. So we'll move on to the questions from the audience now. Uh, so we've got a few questions. The first one is, given the challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic, how has the landscape of property investment changed and what lessons can investors learn from recent disruptions? Well, me being a healthcare professional, I took it very serious. Um, pharmacist to me is a healthcare professional that really needs to be in the forefront of informing people about the health risks of uh, COVID-19. And it was very important to me that people respected the masking and that the masking at the time was very important. 
And I would personally, if I had to go see a property, I would keep a, a social distance of at least 10 feet from the people when I knocked on the door, I'd step back and then I would ask them, uh, you know, do you want me masked or unmasked, whatever is comfortable for you. So I would go with their preference. At one point in time, it depended on how far we or how deep we were into the pandemic. It was necessary to have masks. But as things light, lightened up a little bit, it kind of got to be a, not a mandatory, but a voluntary type of request. And I just try to uh, respect people's uh, rights if I'm coming into their house, how they want me to mask or unmask. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's, that's an interesting one. I guess um, I hadn't thought about how, you know, wearing masks could really affect, I guess, your relationships um, with people who are renting and um, yeah, the people who are selling. Well, they, yeah, these were people who were selling as far as, t- believe it or not, like I said, I never had, I didn't for what, 19, 20, 21 by 22 ish. We were pretty much out of it, but that whole time I had no interaction with a tenant. Okay. I that works. I, my tenants don't bother me. That's good. <laughs> and um, our second um, audience question is an increasingly digital world. How do technical technological advancements um, impact property investment and ownership? Well, as far as investment, I, it's very much a different landscape than it was even 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, the information that's available digitally is very predominant and people, especially people quite a bit younger than me, I would say people in their 20s to their maybe almost into their 40s. They're, that's what they're really used to as far as finding digi- a digital footprint for deals, be it, um, you know, advertising or mining for deals on the internet. Uh, things like Craigslist, things like Facebook Marketplace. There's a lot of people that try to find deals that way. It's not a way I go. I occasionally will sell a property on Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist, some very, very, very low price houses. Um, number of years ago, I would just, I would turn away deals that were like, how can I say this politely? They, they were, were on a street, maybe every third or fourth house was boarded up. Some really, really tough neighborhoods. And then let's face it, in, in the inner cities, there's some really tough neighborhoods. And I would turn away those properties and I even make a, an offer up. And I don't know what clicked in my head. I said, I'm going to try it. I said, I'm, I'm going to put it under contract and I'm going to find somebody that wants this house. And sure enough, within a day, I had a, a property sold that I never thought in, in the world I would ever sell. And it was on Facebook Marketplace. So I've sold over the last probably three years Oh my God, multiple properties. I never would have thought that I possibly could have sold that there's individuals that want those properties out there. And usually, not usually, they're all cash buyers. Uh, The one was a very interesting case. It was a a gentleman, he was driving an hour and a half each way to work and he had the cash. And it was a nice house. It It was a decent house, but it was a crappy neighborhood. But he could move it right away with his family. He had 
three kids, a wife, and it was like a godsend for them because he didn't have to drive that hour and a half each way to work. He bought a house that he could afford for cash and it was close to his work. So, you know, mm. uh, but yeah, um, technology is, you know, is key now for a lot of people as far as uh, finding deals. And of course, you know, I've got a very strong web presence. So that's how a lot of, you know, that's as techy as you can get it when you got a website that, that drives deals to you. Mm, yes, true. So I guess, you know, invest in learning how to use um, SEO and then well, you'll have a good successful yeah, business. Yeah, I, I hired that out. <laughs> <laughs> invest in someone who knows how to use SEO. Yes, exactly. No, I actually have a mm. VA that, that works uh, 40 hours a week. Just that's all he does is SEO. Oh, wow. But um, you, know, you got to stay up on top of Google. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge um, with us. Um, it was very interesting to learn. I think you've changed some of my thoughts, you know, about what property investment is, because I always thought it was, you know, just buying and selling, um, you know, through the bank, whereas it seems, you know, it, it can be quite different. So thank you for that. Um, if our listeners want to find out more about you, um, if they have a house in your area and they want to sell it to you, where can they find you? My name is Don Weed, W-E-D-E. The company is Heartland Funding Incorporated, Heartland Funding Inc. The website is www.heartlandbuyshouses.com. Phone number is 1-800-255-8250. And you know, if you just have any questions whatsoever about uh, anything we've talked about or something that you wanted to talk about, give me a call. Great. Thank you. Uh, oh, we'll make email. sure we put... We need an email. email. Heartlandbuyshouses at gmail.com. Heartlandbuyshouses at gmail.com. Thank you. We'll make sure those uh, links all go into our show notes um, so people can find them. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Gabriella, thank you so much. You've been a great host. Thank you. You've been listening to On The House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.